I hope that you are ready to see the Bible in a different way. Hey, welcome back to the All Things All People podcast, where we are talking to Christian thinkers or we are Christians thinking. And today, honestly, we're doing a big dose of both because today on the show, I have Dr. Michael Heiser. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Dr. Heiser's work, you should familiarize yourself as you're going to hear me say a couple times in the midst of the podcast by listening to another podcast only after you are done with this one called The Naked Bible Podcast. Dr. Heiser, through his work with the podcast, through his website, through his scholarship, through his books, such as the one we're going to be talking about extensively today on the topic of demons and what the Bible really has to say about the powers of darkness, along with other books on angels, the unseen realm, and his participation with things such as the Bible Project and Logos Bible Software, he really is a heavy hitter in the world of Bible scholarship. And today you are going to be both uniquely blessed and uniquely challenged by the conversation you're about to hear because we are talking about the powers of darkness and demons. But as you're going to find out quickly, if you listen to Dr. Heiser for very long at all, or in my case, I actually had the opportunity to talk with him you will begin to see the Bible the way a first century Jewish person would see the Bible. And so I'm super excited for that. And I really think that you are going to be excited over some of the things you hear. You're going to be challenged. You may even disagree. That's okay. Reach out to Dr. Heiser uh, on his Twitter handle, his Instagram handle, going through his website, or you can reach out to me, Jeremy at allthingsallpeople.org, or you can follow me on Instagram at at allthings.allpeople. But really, I just want to get to the show because this one really knocked me over with some of the things we got to talk about. And so we're going to get on with with our Christian thinker for this week's episode, Dr. Michael Heiser. My guest today received his first master's from the University of Pennsylvania in ancient history, specializing in ancient Egypt and Syro-Palestine or Israel. His second master's from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Hebrew and Semitic languages, and his PhD from UW-Madison, where he wrote his dissertation on the Divine Council in Second Temple Literature, a topic that, as you're going to find out, he has become a renowned expert in today. For 14 years, he served as scholar-in-residence for Logos Bible Software. He now spends much of his time writing, having released recent books such as The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible, Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host, and Demons, What the Bible Really Says About the Powers of Darkness. While you have likely been impacted by him already, as he has consulted on popular Bible Project videos such as the Spiritual Beings series, You should probably start listening to him dive deep into the Bible on the Naked Bible podcast, and also check out the Awakening School of Theology at schooloftheology.com. It's my great pleasure to have on the show today, Dr. Michael Heiser. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And you should follow Dr. Mike uh, by checking out his website, uh, drmsh.com, and by following him on Twitter and Instagram at... D-R-M-S-H-P-H-D, Dr. M-S-H-P-H-D. After you listen to this, make sure, like I said, to go check out the Naked Bible Podcast and subscribe to that. I will warn you, though, if you listen to the Naked Bible Podcast, you need to be sitting down with your Bible open because it is a, <laughs> it is a deep dive uh, of, of real academia that most Christians just don't get anywhere else, and so make sure to check that out. Um, you know, Dr. Heiser, I... I uh, I'm, I'm a fan of yours. I listen to the podcast, and I think that today many people are going to be surprised by what they don't know about the Bible just from listening to you. Do you find that uh, you, you elicit difficult reactions from people as you kind of bend and break some of the preconceived notions they have about Scripture? Well, I, I mean, I try to do – I'm not a bull in a china closet, but, mm-hmm. you know, if, if – if someone's using a, a poor idea to defend something that's true, that's still not a good thing to do because along the way, you know, I've, I've met too many believers now that, you know, believe X, Y, Z, and then they either run into a professor somewhere uh, in, in college or the village atheist, you know, on the internet <laughs> who, 
you know, who happens to be, you know, correct at, at some point that, that the believer has never heard. And then that art, that defense of that thing they believe unravels in front of their eyes and they have nothing to replace it with. So it, it's never a good idea to defend, uh, you know, something that's, that's true with a, with a bad argument. Mm. And, and when I know that that's sort of where the person's at, yeah, you know, I, I will say something, but I, I try not to, to unravel things and then just sort of leave, you know, leave a, a pile of ashes there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's not a good idea either. I, I try to replace it with something that's more defensible and, mm-hmm. and better and help them understand why that argument isn't a good one and how they can, how it can be exploited by someone mm-hmm. who's really antagonistic to their faith. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed, it's, it's not new, but it seems new because of guys like you and, and Dr. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, who, as we already mentioned, your your buddies with and have worked with is this, this renewed movement of teaching Christians how to view the Bible the way Jesus would have viewed the Bible and the people around yeah. him in the first century and before that. And I heard you say once that you went into biblical language because you thought that that was where the confusion was. And you say, I was not wrong. Um, You know, in your opinion, just how confused are most Western Christians when it comes to the Bible and even more specifically the supernatural? You know, I honestly don't think there's anything more tragic and more important uh, for today's Christian than to re-examine the way they think about this thing we call the Bible. Mm -hmm. It, It is the root of all attacks against scripture, basically. And what I mean by that is, you know, people who who are antagonistic to the faith, who've spent a decent amount of time um, trying to attack it, will ultimately utilize the caricature of how Christians are taught about the Bible, that that is is really living, you know, in, in the Christian's head, and we'll use that to undermine their faith. And, and honestly, I can do it in five minutes. It's not very hard. Right. You know, because we've been taught to, to think of the Bible as something basically that dropped from heaven. You know, I, I have emails where people will say things to me like, you know, I just saw on the History Channel that there's this Babylonian text that that has like a day of rest after six days. And 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 like this, that means the Sabbath isn't unique. And but but that's the, the Sabbath is something the Bible teaches. And so if it's not unique, you know the Bible can't be the Word of God, which is a really nice string of non sequiturs. Sure. Okay. But you know people are are sort of startled and shocked and alarmed that there would be similarities between the wider culture of the Bible and the Bible. Yeah. Because they've been taught well it. You know, it, it's in the Bible, so it, it has to be unique because it's the Word of God, and the other stuff isn't the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Look, the Bible is not a channeled book. That's mm-hmm. for UFO cults, mm-hmm. all right? It's not a channeled book. You know, God didn't zap people, and then their brains disengage or get erased, and their arms and fingers somehow work. That's automatic writing, which is an occult worldview, you know, thing. Mm-hmm. You know, th- but, but this is how we're taught to think about Scripture that it's not a human thing. Okay. Mm. It's not enough to say the Bible is a divine book. Okay. You have to say it's a divine and human book because that's what it is. It's both. And, and, and humans were prepared by God through every stage of their life, all their experiences, their worldview. I mean, God chooses the time and place and the people that he's going to prompt and prepare and engage to produce this thing we call the Bible. Of course, they're going to read books. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're going to have life experiences. Of course, they're going to have conversations. Of course, they're going to they're going to live in a you know share ideas and 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 beliefs and you know practices and troubles and problems with people they live in the same region. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're not Martians, okay? The Bible biblical writers are not from another planet. They they're right here, and God chooses the time and place. And the occasion, and again, is is my, my view of inspiration is very providential. God is is there at every step, every step of the way, preparing the writer for the right time, you know, for posterity. And you know, just think of what the result would be if the Bible was those things—a mm-hmm. channeled document that the Israelites are Martians, that they have no connection to their world. How does it communicate to anybody? Right. Yeah. How is it a polemic? I mean, how how is the Babylonian going to know? 
when their deities are being dissed, when they're being challenged. You know, what, how, how are you going to be able to understand the differences in the worldview if you don't understand the samenesses? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but, but this is what, what, again, people who are antagonistic to Scripture exploit. You know, they'll show them simple things like the synoptic Gospels. Well, the events aren't in all the Gospels. They're not even in the same order. And even if they are in the same order, if you're looking at Greek, you know, Jesus will use this word in this tense, and then over in another Gospel, it's a different tense. You know, and again, how can the Bible be, be you know, given from the breath of God? You know, they'll, they'll exploit, again, a, a channeled idea mm-hmm. here. How, how can this be the Word of God if it's just different in all these places? Can't the Holy Spirit make up his mind? Mm-hmm. Again, it, it's very easy to attack, you know, in, in a foundational, fundamental way, who we are as believers, because our beliefs are rooted in Scripture. If this is the way you think about the Bible, you, you're just, you're ducks on a pond. I mean, you are an easy target, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the people who just really want to destroy your faith. And so yeah. I try to get people to think about scripture differently in, in very simple proposition. This is not complicated. Yeah. A, you know, pro tip. If God picked people living two or three millennia ago, then we might want to think about what they wrote in terms of what was floating around in their head. Mm-hmm. And, and if we believe they wrote with a purpose, like it wasn't random and purposeless, then it must have been designed to communicate to people living at the same time. Mm-hmm. So the right context for interpreting scripture would be the, the context in which it was produced. Yeah. It's nothing later. It's not the church fathers. It's not the Reformation. It's not evangelicalism. It's not the charismatics. It's not the reform movement. You know, and, I, and I'm not saying that, that these things are bad. They're just not the biblical context. Mm-hmm. They're post-biblical context. Yeah. They, they serve a good purpose. I mean, I've benefited from all of them. But it's not the context of Scripture. And, and so if, if we can force ourselves to, to try to get the Israelite in our head, when we read the Old Testament, to try to get the first century Jew in our head when we read the New Testament. And the only way we can do that is to read the things they wrote and try to try to get their worldview in, in our head by, by research and study. I mean, it, it's difficult. It's work. Okay, mm-hmm. But if we do that, there's lots of things in the Bible that will just kind of make sense mm-hmm. on their own terms. And, and you'll see how one thought connects to the other thought. Right. But you can't do that if you're asking entirely different questions about the text and assuming that the biblical writers were you, (laughs) they're not. Mm -hmm. Hey, this is a very simple idea. And I'm still amazed at how revolutionary that is to so many Christians, Mm -hmm. but it is. Yeah. Well, and you know, as you said, trying to get into the, the biblical writers heads for people who don't know much about the ancient near East or the world that the, Bible was written in. It was a very spiritual world. Uh, all these uh, opposing groups and nations, and, and and we see that God essentially might have been using preconceived constructs in that ancient Near East world to introduce new ideas. And if we, if you know, there seems to be sometimes a common thought in Christianity today that anything that was borrowed or anything that was similar to any of these other groups mm-hmm. uh, has to be null and void because like you said, the Bible is completely original, but, but in a, in a way I would imagine you would agree. Like when we compare the biblical writing to maybe the writing in Islam of the Quran, this idea that Allah perfectly dictated to Gabriel, then mm-hmm. for, for to Muhammad um, that, that channel, as you continue to say is hugely, is hugely problematic because oh, sure. you know, then we see, well, not some of these things don't make sense, you know, but when we see in the biblical writing, these similarities, and then also to the, the personages of the writers coming through, we see that God intended for this to be understood. Yeah. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would have looked at agriculture and pointed to these, these wheat and trees and said, Hey, you understand this preconceived construct. So let me teach you a new spiritual even, idea. Even something as familiar as covenants. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, the, the Bible has lots of covenants in them, and the, and the covenants will, by and large, conform 
to the, the literary style of how covenants were written in the ancient Near East in different periods. You know, some scholars really try to press this to actually date, uh, you know, biblical text, you know, which is, you know, a, a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. But, but it shows how, how much similarity there is. And, and, you know, parts of covenants would be like, you know, the gods would bear witness, you know, between this king and his people and blah, 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 you know, because of that, if you disobey the king, then the gods are going to get you, you know. And, and in the Bible, you know, mimes these things because they're familiar. If it didn't mime these things, you know, your a literate person would read the covenant and go, boy, this dude didn't, didn't know how to write a covenant. Like, mm-hmm. what's up with that? You know, how, why, how, how incompetent is, is this? But, but when we notice that, that they're tracking on these, these elements of sameness, then the differences yeah. come out. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, you know, the gods aren't called, you know, to, to witness the covenant. God witnesses it himself. And in Israel's case, the Israelite, you know, the, the, the covenantal relationship is unique because it's based on love. Mm-hmm. Okay, Deuteronomy 7. That's, that is not found anywhere else in the ancient Near East. You know, so who cares if something is the same? Mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> That's expected. Mm-hmm. That, that, that makes the differences all the more important because it's the differences that teach theology. Mm. It teaches how the Israelites look at their world differently, how their God is different than the other ones. Mm-hmm. But you can't detect that if you don't know the, the similarities. I mean, even Jesus refers to, to when he's arguing with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're, they're saying he's casting out you know, de- you know, demons by, by Satan. And he's like, well, who do you, you know, your guys that do this, who do they cast about by? I mean, mm-hmm. he, he, so there's a sameness even there. Yeah. But again, if, if you actually look at exorcistic accounts, the, the fundamental difference is what? The Jewish people, you know, Jew, and there are lots of Jewish you know, texts that, that, that have exorcism. Right. They're appealing to the Most High mm-hmm. as their authority to cast out a demon. Jesus never appeals to anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm. He doesn't need to. Right. He is the Most High in flesh. Mm-hmm. I mean, so you, you, when when you're when you're you're trained as a Bible student to again look at, at Scripture in its own original ancient context, when that becomes reflexive, you do start to notice where the disconnects are, mm-hmm. and 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 then you then you can finally find the teaching points. Why was Israel different? Why is Yahweh different? Mm-hmm. You know, what, why is the theology different? In, in the ancient world, the image of God, you, you wouldn't say that, that every human was, was the image bearer of the deity. That's only for kings, not in the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just really important things like this. Mm-hmm. And they're almost on every page of the Bible. But, but we are not trained to even consider this mode of thinking when we approach Scripture. And, and honestly, it's tragic. Yeah. It makes Scripture vulnerable. Mm-hmm. to criticism the way that the, the typical Christian thinks about it. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned something that's going to be part of the fabric of our conversation here in a bit, this idea of the most high and Jesus as the most high or El Elyon. And that really plays into quite a bit of, you know, the teachings that you've, you've become well known for, but, but also just to drive home for anybody who's listening, um, you know, why it is that you do what you do. I, I first came upon your work, as I told you, when I started traveling around the world and studying world religions, I saw shamans, witch doctors, Santeria priests in Cuba, all offering their services. And I remember I was challenged and also weirdly comforted by reading something that you said when you said that these things aren't forbidden in scripture because they don't work. They're forbidden in scripture because they, they do work in this idea Mm -hmm. that we're surrounded by the powers of darkness, which is why Anybody who's listening to this is probably, you know, there's sort of a fetishized fan, you know, like people want to hear about the powers of darkness. And I think you Mm -hmm. and I are going to not buy into that at all. But in your opinion, when most Christians read in the Bible about the witch at Endor or Pharaoh's magicians or demons, what do you think the most common interpretation of that is now in 2020? Yeah, I, I, there, there are lots of attempts to sort of make it not say what it says. Mm You know, and I think some scholars and pastors reflexively try to do that to quote unquote protect their people from getting too interested or or from acknowledging that that there is there is real time power, you know, on this other side. 
because that allows them to reduce Satan and, and the power, other powers of darkness to sort of abstract theological powers. You know, oh, they want to get you to sin maybe, or they don't like that you're a Christian. And all of that is sort of in the abstract, you know, world that, that you can't like, you can't experience it with your senses in any way. And, right. and so that's safe. But in, in this case, you know, when you, when you have real time events and, you know, your, your stories, you know, and I, you know, we, we, you and I both have heard a number of these sorts of things from missionaries and even, you know, people who are saved out of these things. Right. These are demonstrations of power because it's a, it's a conflict. It is a contest. Mm-hmm. You know, there is something to be won or lost here. Mm-hmm. It's not just, argumentation again this abstract theologizing and i think that most you know pastors and and, and even you know believing scholars they they don't want to have to get get into that right um it, it's just easier to to argue to to, to make, turn it into a debate and then dismiss it mm-hmm. if it's nothing but an abstraction so i think that's sort of the the, the impulse there Right. And so we, we, we tend to look at these passages and other ones as saying, well, there, you know, this didn't like really happen. It, it, it mm-hmm. means this other, this abstract theological idea over here. Right. Or, or, you know, Saul was deceived. You know, it's just too bad that the disembodied Saul or, or Samuel there, mm-hmm. you know, re- repeat stuff that God had told him earlier in the book to, you know, <laughs> to yes. hugely yeah. problematic for the beginning Bible student. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and so as you kind of say, um, a large part of what you do and have been doing for the last you know, bit of your career, large majority of your academic career has been helping Christians read the Bible and, and not just simply explain away abstractions and, and understand there's, there's a reality here to these powers of darkness and even more to the unseen realm. To those who are listening who aren't familiar, you know, you didn't start off reading, uh, writing about demons. You, you right. wrote Unseen Realm, and it was almost as if you couldn't not write about angels and demons then because there was so much there to explain. But much of the worldview when it comes to the powers of darkness that you propose uh, to people who read your books is wrapped up in the idea that while most Christians today believe the problems of the world are a result of the rebellion in Eden and therefore just lumping all of these powers of darkness in as one category, such as demons, mm-hmm. you, you sort of propose, actually not sort of, you absolutely propose that it's actually Eden along with two other rebellions, yeah. the sons of God mentioned in Genesis six, and then the rebellion in Genesis 11, which is later mentioned in Deuteronomy 32, where you say uh, describe in Deuteronomy 32 describes Yahweh's dispersal of the nations at Babel and his resultant disinheriting of those nations, giving them over to other lesser gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a punishment. As a punishment. So, you know, for someone listening, uh, this who's never read your stuff, just the mere fact that I mentioned lesser gods is going to be a, a shock to them. And I, I'm sure you're aware, you probably get a lot of uh, uh, critical mail just even for mentioning that there's other lesser gods. But, but before we dig too deep into that, for someone listening who's not completely aware of the significance of those two events, Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, uh, the sons of God in Babel, can you break down Genesis 6 and 11, and then of course, therefore, Deuteronomy 32, mm-hmm. and just simply explain what you think happened there and why it's so important for us to mm-hmm. read the rest of the Bible through that lens? Yeah, I, I should say first, you know, l- l- lesser gods, lesser Elohim, other sure. you know, plural Elohim, you know, I'm sorry, I, I didn't write the Bible, okay, but I do know how to read it. Yeah. Okay, this is simple Hebrew, like in Psalm 82, verse 1. And some English translations try to obscure it, you know, referring to the plural Elohim there in the second mm-hmm. half of verse 1 as rulers or leaders. Or right. Whatever. You know, that that's just deceptive translation. I, I don't mm-hmm. know what else to call it. it, it it's it, it's obscuring what the text actually says. And I'm, I'm not saying by any of, you know, by divine plurality, we don't have multiple Yahwehs right. running around. It's not polytheism. Right. It's not polytheism. Elohim is just a term you would use to describe any resident, any disembodied, you know, you know being of the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. Yahweh is an Elohim and there's lots of Elohim, but there's only one of those Elohim that is Yahweh. Mm-hmm. You know, we get our theology not from a word like Elohim. We get our theology from the way that this particular Elohim is described and the denial of his attributes to all others. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we only have one. 
Right. And there's one God of the Bible, and he is species unique. Okay. But there's lots of Elohim. They're members of the heavenly host. You know, mm-hmm. That's the, the more familiar way to say it. So, you know, you, you do have these members of the heavenly host. You go, all the, you go all the way back to Genesis 1 with the plurality language in Genesis 1, 26, that, you know, they, the members of the heavenly host are like us. And, and in some ways, both of those groups are like God because of this imaging concept which is a status, it's, it, the image is representation. And, and to accomplish, uh, to be God's representative, his proxy, he shares his attributes with his imagers. That's them and us. And so one of those attributes is freedom. And so you, you do have the potential for rebellion. Mm-hmm. You know, we get the first rebellion in Eden, you know, one particular you know, supernatural being, but the second one is the Genesis 6 incident, which we are taught to not see. And we've mm-hmm. been taught to not see since the days of Augustine. Mm-hmm. You know, early Judaism and the early church uh, up to the, the time of Augustine, actually a little bit before him with, with Africanus, um, everybody just out of the gate considered the sons of God there as supernatural beings. Right. All right. And I talk in Unseen Realm about, you know, a couple of ways to, to parse this. But we get fixated on sons of God and, and the, the, the Nephilim that are the product of this. Well, this is actually the, the point of reference for where we get demons, ultimately. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just looked at Genesis 6 and didn't know any of the, of the backstory, the Mesopotamian context for this, you would wonder, like, man, when I get to the intertestamental period, they're saying things like demons are the disembodied spirits of the dead giants, you know, the Nephilim right. and the Rephaim and the Anakim, all those emes, all right? You wonder where in the world did Jewish thinkers get their theology from? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I unpack this in demons and an unseen yeah. realm. I'm not going to do it here, but there's a direct correlation between those two thoughts. You get hints of it in the Old Testament. You know, you you get Rephaim in in Sheol scenes. Right. You do get that. You know, and there there are other little 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 snippets where the Second Temple you know guys are are getting their data points for their theology from the Hebrew Bible, but the real issue with the second rebellion is not the weird, you know, tall guys. Okay. Then right. mm-hmm. the real issue is verse five in Genesis six. How do you go from sons of God and Nephilim to verse five, where it says, and God saw that the wickedness of man, you know, was, was like everywhere. Every thought of the imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Somehow the first four verses lead to the corruption of humanity mm-hmm. and mass. Again, if you know the backstory, you know how to parse that. Mm-hmm. And the second temple Jews did. But the Genesis 6 rebellion, a supernatural rebellion, leads to the proliferation of depravity. Okay, and that's, again, a contributing factor to why the world is such a mess. The third rebellion is this judgment, you know, where where God has basically had it with humanity. I mean, just ask yourself simple questions as a Bible student. You know, I read Genesis 1 to 11. It seems like everybody kind of knows who the true God is. Right. And, you know, they're either on the, on his, you know, have a good relationship with him or a bad relationship. And then I get to Genesis 11 and I read about Abraham's, you know, father, Terah. And I want to know a little bit more about Terah. So I look him up and good grief. He was an idolater. Right. Mm -hmm. This is mentioned in Joshua. Well, how did we get idolatry? I thought there was only one God in Genesis 1 through 11. Mm -hmm. Well, there was until Babel. Right. Because God has, is fed up with humanity, and he disinherits the nations at Babel. He scatters them, and he assigns them. This is Deuteronomy 32, 8, which, which typically we never even see. Right. Because most of our English translations do not follow the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it says essentially, when the Most High divided up the nations, again, we know when that is. That's not a brain teaser. When he divides up the nations, he divides them up according to the number of the sons of God. But Israel, verse 9, is Yahweh's portion. Mm-hmm. Jacob is his, you know, in his inheritance. And you can trace this idea back to Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20. That's the parallel of Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9. Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 29. You know, later on in Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, Israel falls into worshiping these other gods. And it, it, it says that they, they worshiped Shadim, which English translations have as demons. It's, it's not a good translation. A Shadim comes from an Akkadian term, which means a territorial entity, which makes a lot of sense in light of Deuteronomy 32.8. What else would it be? But they they, they worship them, and they're called Elohim in the verse. Okay, I don't write the stuff, but I know how to read it. 
So you, you've got essentially Israel against the world, Israel against all the nations, Yahweh against the other gods, because God wanted these other, these other Elohim to essentially be placeholders. And he's going he's gonna to divorce humanity and start over with Israel. And that, that's why Genesis 12, right after the Babel incident, is God raising up you know, Israel through Abraham and Sarah. Right. Of course, she's perfect because she can't have kids. Right, so he has to this prove his his adoption Adam. of Israel. Yeah, exactly. This we're gonna. It's the new Adam. We're starting mm -hmm. over here. We're not giving up on the on the Edenic vision, and and you know, it creates this this situation though, where these other Elohim have a decision to make. We're either gonna you know rule our our charges or our people justly according to the character of God, or we're not. Mm -hmm. We're going to have them worship us. We're going right. to so, and in Psalm 82 details what they do. This is why they're being condemned in Psalm 82 because they sow chaos everywhere. They enslave mm -hmm. their nations. And so now, again, if you're looking at why is the world such a mess? Why is there so much sin and evil? Well, there's really three reasons. What happens in Eden, Genesis 6, the proliferation of depravity, and then what happens at Babel. Okay, yeah. the fact that, that, other, that people, humanity, it, you know, en masse, mm -hmm goes after other gods and those gods seek to destroy them and so chaos in their lives. Right. That's the biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. And if, if you think that, you're going to expect the Messiah to fix mm -hmm. all three problems. Yeah. Wow. And, and this is what I do in Unseen Realm and, and, in, and in Demons. You know, and, you know, it's not just Unseen Realm, but that's the one I'm, uh, book I'm most known for. This, this is why certain things are cast and said and certain scenes take place in certain places. In the New Testament, in, in the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of, of the apostles, because the point is being made that that the you know Jesus through his work and his his resurrection and ascension does in fact address all three. Mm -hmm. The gospel is about all three, and, and, and we miss that entirely because we are taught to not see number two, and number three we may never see because of. Of, our, of a translation that we use. Right. Yeah. And we turn the Tower of Babel into a parable of human pride, um, yeah. which it, it certainly is, but it, sure. you're, you're suggesting that it goes far beyond that in, in even explaining how we got to where we are today. And some people I who are listening. You build a tower. Right. What's a, what's a ziggurat? It's part of a temple. Yeah. Bond. You don't yeah. build temples unless you're going to worship something. You know, you know and, and God doesn't want, you know, the, the plan wasn't you build this thing and then you, you summon me through your mm -hmm. ceremony. He's like, like I'm at your beck and call. Okay, Yahweh yeah. will not be tamed. Mm -hmm. All right, this is not what I asked you to do. And, and God is yeah. tipped. You know? Yeah. Well, and ultimately, the biblical narrative is, is stories of humans wanting to dictate deities. Yes. And God saying, that's not how I work. Yep. <laughs> you know, and so, and we see that time and time again in the nation of Israel and then even in, even in the, the New Testament. But, you know, some people, might, their heads still might be spinning at this mention of other gods. And so um, there's a terrific article that I think is on your website, which might even be an excerpt from Demons, um, that I'm going to link in the notes to explaining Elohim. Because as you mentioned, Elohim is used many times over. It's even used for human spirits. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. so it's, it's, more of, it's more of speaking to what plane of existence. Right. Let, let's ask ourselves a, a, an easy question, but again, one that doesn't commonly occur. You know, it doesn't pop in the head. And, you know, I have put myself in this category. I was a doctoral student until somebody forced me to read Psalm 82 in Hebrew, and then I was in, I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's like, look, if Elohim is used of five or six different things other than the God of Israel, that alone tells you that the biblical writer is not thinking of Elohim as a unique set of attributes, the way we look right. at the letters G -O Or a royal title. Right. That, that should tell you that much out of the gate if you're thinking about it. Right. Uh, and so I think that's a good place for people to begin. Why would the biblical writers do that? If this word means, you know, omnipotence, omniscience, you know, all, the, all mm -hmm. these things that are unique to the, to the God of the Bible. Well, it doesn't. It can't. Yeah. Because look at the, what the biblical writers are, are doing with it. Mm -hmm. And certainly the deceased Samuel. I mean, no Israelite in his right mind is going to think, oh, my, my dead three-year-old is, is on an, an ontological par with Yahweh now. Mm -hmm. Well, they're both Elohim. I mean, right. nobody's going to think that. Right. It's absurd. Yeah. But yet, again, we don't even ask ourselves these mm -hmm. questions. 
Yeah. And like I said, for anybody who's listening, who wants to learn more, obviously your website's a terrific resource, but I'm going to link specifically to that one article. That's probably a good starting point. Mm-hmm. You know, we've mentioned Elohim quite a bit. Yahweh, when he's describing himself, if he's not using Yahweh, he's, he's typically referring to himself as El Elyon or, mm-hmm. or the most high. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to another question of, okay, so then who is everybody else? And <laughs> we, we don't, we don't yeah, have by definition lesser. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, you know, so, and we don't have time for a complete taxonomy or explanation of, of everybody. That's what your books are for. And, and those, those will also be linked in the show notes for anybody who wants to dig into unseen realm angels or demons, not to be confused with the Dan Brown angels and demons, but yeah, um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, so a lot of people, of course, when they hear demons, they they immediately are interested and like i said earlier there's un, there's an unfortunate fetishizing of the powers of mm-hmm. darkness mm-hmm. um you you once said not all powers of darkness are demons mm-hmm. can you just explain though for people listening what are demons and how do they fit into these other powers of darkness that right. were mentioned in 32 Deuteronomy? demons demons are you know they're derivative from the second rebellion they are spirit beings who are of course opposed and adversarial in their relationship with God, their evil spirits. Mm-hmm. They're also called unclean spirits, which points to Genesis 6, believe it or not, because the, the Torah concept of being unclean derives from forbidden mixture. Mm-hmm. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls calls them bastard spirits, because that's what they are. Okay, mm-hmm. So you, you have these, these beings that are the disembodied spirits of the dead you know, giant remnants, mm-hmm. and they seek re-embodiment. Okay, this is what they do. They harass individuals. They harm people. They possess people. But this is actually a low-level sort of activity mm-hmm. because the other ones, okay, the ones that, that the fallen gods, that the corrupt gods from Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 82, they are geopolitical entities. Again, simple question for Bible students. You're reading Daniel 10. Everybody knows Daniel 10, supernatural prince of Persia and Greece, and they're fighting Michael, and they're, they're, called, they're, they're described with the same language. Everybody knows that these are supernatural beings. Does anybody ever ask, hey, where does Daniel get that theology? Right. Well, he gets it from Deuteronomy 32. Mm-hmm. He gets it from the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. He doesn't invent it. Yeah, he refers to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. Right, exactly. These are, these are, these are supernatural beings who are opposed to God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, over nations. Mm-hmm. Ding, 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 ding. You know, that's yeah. Deuteronomy 32. It's Psalm mm-hmm. 80. This is where Daniel gets his theology. And so Paul inherits this worldview. And again, I discuss in Demons, you know, Paul's you know, connectivity to Daniel 10 and these other passages. And Paul, this is why Paul will occasionally use the word demon, right? typically when he's using the Septuagint as well. But most frequently, Paul uses terms like principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, dominions, you know. And what do all these terms have in common? They are terms of geographical dominion. Right. These guys are more serious than demons. Demons are basically harming people and turning them into sock puppets or flesh puppets, you know. These guys, this is a whole different game. Mm -hmm. We're enslaving populations now. Mm -hmm. We are blinding people. To, the, to, to a relationship with the Most High, who we know is over us and gave us our charges, and now we are in opposition to. Yeah. And, and in Demons and Unseen Realm, you call that cosmic geography, which I think yeah. is a great way to describe it. The idea that there are territorial spirits and that certain places have more demonic activity and are even owned and oppressed specifically by these territorial deities. I think the best example that, that I've heard you uh, use is Bashan, Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for listeners, great Bashan is a great example of this, a geographical region. It was the last stronghold of the giant clans. Yep. It was where the sons of God would have descended in Genesis six during the first century. It was near, uh, notable temples like Zeus mm-hmm. and Pan. And then most notably to most Christians who would know this story, that's where Jesus or near that was where Jesus met Legion, yeah. the demon. Yeah. And so yeah, it, it's very telling, you know, what you have, you have these instances where, Again, Jesus is in gen, is in territory that in the Old Testament would have been associated with, you know, Gentiles, and, right. and in the New Testament era, where predominantly you know Gentiles lived there. I mean, this is a herd of pigs. Okay, yeah, you know, it doesn't really <laughs> obviously wasn't term. Jewish. Yeah, you know, so and and the way they address Jesus, you know, as the Son of the Most High, 
Yeah. Whereas if it's an exorcism on in, in, in Jewish turf, it's the son of David. Mm. Okay. Well, son of the most high, where do we get the most high line? Which again, it's Deuteronomy 32. I mean, they, they know who this is mm-hmm. and, and they know what the pecking order is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're just little telltale sorts of things like yeah. this that are, that are these undercurrents in the text that, that we miss because we're not, we don't, again, we don't have the worldview in our head. Mm-hmm. We just, you know, we don't have this. Yeah. And, and that's what kind of makes it neat. I, I should say too, you know, you know, when we talk about this invariably people, are, well, what I want to know what the spirit's name is over my neighborhood or over the, you know, America or what look, right. they're all defeated already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is why Paul in half a dozen passages links the resurrection and ascension to the nullification of the authority of the gods of the nations, because the gospel, the Messiah is for them too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jesus comes back and specifically when he sends out the 70 in Luke 10, he's already called 12, which is the Jewish number, the 12 tribes, yeah. 12 mm-hmm. disciples. He sends out 70 as when he launches the kingdom mis- you know, mission. It telegraphs the fact that, look, I am the Messiah and the Savior for the entire world. I want every last inch of it. I have authority over all of it. You know, we are not here to, to reclaim the people living in a place the size of New Jersey, all right? Mm-hmm. We want everything because it's all God's anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, it's this cosmic thinking. And, and with the resurrection and ascension, their authority to, ins- to, to rule their people has been removed by the one who gave it originally. Mm-hmm. Yes, they abused it. They became corrupt. We know all that if we read the Old Testament, okay? But Jesus is there like, now is the time when I am calling everyone back to a relationship with the Most High, the true God, yeah. and I am the mechanism for doing so. Mm-hmm. I am not just the Messiah for Israel. Yeah, I'm the Messiah for all of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so as far as function goes, and I know, you, you know, you're an academic and, and, a, and a fantastic one at that. So you probably hesitate to make decorative statements, but I've been to places both in the United States and also especially overseas where I certainly feel as if there, there, there is a power of darkness at play. Um, there's certainly spiritual, absolutely spiritual oppression. That's that tangible. Um, and it even sometimes, you know, if I go to India, um, it's not far-fetched to say that there's a geographical link to that, that power mm-hmm. of darkness. Do you believe that the powers of darkness are still functioning in today's world, how they would have been in Deuteronomy 32 yeah. and in places like Bashan? Well, they're, they're not functioning precisely in the way because their authority is, sure. has been destroyed. It's yeah. been undermined and, and, and withdrawn. But that doesn't mean they're, they're dead, okay? Mm-hmm. The, the, the judgment of Psalm 82 and Isaiah 34 and Isaiah you know, 24, these are eschatological judgments. You know, the, when, when, when Yahweh tells the, the gods of the nations that they're going to die like men, okay, mm-hmm. this is associated with the day of the Lord, which is eschatological. Mm-hmm. So their authority has been withdrawn, but they're still clinging to their turf. Mm-hmm. They, they want to rob Yahweh of his children now. They want to keep people blind and so chaos it, through, through the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, it's still a spiritual conflict. Mm-hmm. But, but Paul, again, knowing that, you know, Gentiles shared this worldview, which is another thing we don't know. I mean, in the demons book, I quote a long passage from Plato that uses, that sounds exactly like the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. It even uses right. allotment language. They know what, you know, that we worship these gods because the bigger gods say we have to, or, you know, we're allotted and given over. And, and Paul goes into a city and says, look, I know, I know you're thinking that if you forsake your gods, you're in trouble. But what I'm here to tell you is that the Most High, who gave them their authority, has withdrawn it. Mm-hmm. And not only is allowing you to turn your back on them and come to faith in the Most High, who became a man on your behalf and died and rose again, mm-hmm. but he insists on it. You know, it, it, there, there, there's this worldview thing going on that the other side, the side of darkness, they don't want to hear that. Right. It's true, but they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep people from believing it and to keep mm-hmm. their lives in chaos, to, to, to make people destroy themselves efficiently. This, this is what they do, you know, to keep them from, from the faith. So, yeah, they, they're, they're still fighting for their turf. They're still there. They're still present. They're still active. And, and I think when we, 
if we ever have an occasion, you know, I'm not, I don't, I never recommend, you know, Christians to, to think of themselves as ghostbusters, you know, right. and that's typically what happens in charismania, but you might, especially as a missionary, but mm-hmm. even here in this country, you might run into a situation where you might suspect, you know, we have some power of darkness here. The best thing to do is speak truth to lies. Mm-hmm. I know what your destiny is. Mm-hmm. So I that, yeah. No authority here. Yeah. And, and that leads me to, I think what a lot of people, I know actually that they ask you um, is this idea of spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare, which as you mentioned in, in certain charismatic circles is mm-hmm. a large part of what they, they talk about. And, and of course that's them trying to answer a, a very real problem in writing about these topics though. Um, it's inevitable that you, spiritual warfare comes up and you have written that many forms of spiritual warfare, such as what might be known as power encounters mm-hmm. are not the best way to deal with the powers of darkness. But yet at the same time, you and I just talked about Daniel where mm-hmm. the Archangel Michael in fighting the Prince of Persia and Prince of Greece says your fasting and prayer is what yeah. empowered me. And so, you know, it, it, but you said that, you know, fundamentally confrontation of the spirit world isn't the pattern that one sees in the new Testament in regard to the defeat of the fallen sons of God. So you're unique in my opinion, as far as an academic and scholar who recognizes the very real presence of the powers of darkness and gives it a lot of credence into far as how, you know, but then also at the same time does not profess um, strong belief in what might be known as power encounters or rebuking spirits, very yeah, common I, I think- exorcism. I'm, I'm going to say something that might, you know, God forbid, might be a little controversial here. Um, <laughs> I think we've already done that. So you go right, right ahead. I think we've already done that. But I have to ask myself, again, I, I'm not a, a deliverance practitioner. I mean, I, sure. I know people who have come out of that, you know, and and and, and in some ways would, would still be linked to it. But but I, I realize deliverance is a spectrum. It's not sure. a thing mm-hmm. here. But I have to ask myself, why do you care if you know which entity is in which place? Mm-hmm. And the reason, you know, they, they wouldn't you know, come out and say this, but you're depending on your knowledge of that thing mm-hmm. to maybe write a prayer of renunciation, to pray a very particular prayer with particular words. In other words, you're putting, you're putting the, the focus of the encounter on your knowledge and what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. I would suggest you don't need to do any of that. Mm-hmm. I would suggest you quote passages that Paul talks about the nullification of their power. Because see, then, then the, the, the issue of the encounter is not your ability to know the enemy. Mm-hmm. Okay. The issue is what scripture says about the enemy, what, what Jesus accomplished about the enemy. It's, it's a very slight adjustment in thinking, mm-hmm. but I think it's fundamentally important. Yeah. You know, and in the Daniel instance, and Jesus says, you know, some, like even demons, some will not, you know, come out except by prayer and fasting. You know, God doesn't learn anything when we pray. Mm-hmm. Okay. He already knows what's inside of our heads. What prayer and fasting do is show our dependence on what God has done and said. We do not transfer the, the mechanism for the encounter to our ability to formulate something, you know, some ritual or some, you know, again, prayer of renunciation, whatever it is, yeah. we, we don't do that. That's not what we're supposed to do. We are supposed to, to take, you know, take the matter to scripture, speak truth to lies and liars. Mm-hmm. This is what they are. Um, yeah, I think we, we need to, to keep our focus on what has been accomplished for us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we need prayer and fasting to, to realign our thinking you know, to, to, to be more dependent mm-hmm. on, on, on Jesus, you know, for what he has done mm-hmm. in this and for this situation. Yeah. And so to the, you know, to the pastor, to the missionary, um, maybe those who are just earnestly trying to seek out, you know, maybe they've been in situations where they have experienced or seen um, possession, oppression, and things that you've written about extensively what I guess what I'm, you know, so you're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Then you no. would say you're saying those things are very real. And there right. is, you may, cr- you may well wind up in a situation where this is, this is what you have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you're saying more focus on scripture. Don't, don't rebuke. Uh, and I've, and I've read where you've quoted Jude and, and Peter, where you said they were very quick to say, do not dare blaspheme these glorious even, ones. Even angels know better yeah. than to give lip 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> to get lippy with with mm-hmm. somebody who's higher up on the on, in the packing order. Sure. And so so I, I suppose for the listeners to to be clear, what you're suggesting is not that these things aren't real, but that focus on the word of God, focus on yeah. things that you know to be true, not not wrestling with you know uh, the powers of darkness, whether it be in possession, oppression, things like that. Which I know those are topics that maybe there's a listener who doesn't even believe that those things happen. I personally do, and I know you personally do as well. But the spectrum, as you've said, in regards to deliverance, is that you have some people who record They're them, ghost- put them on right. YouTube, and all it's these a things. Ghostbuster thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's the best metaphor that I, you know, analogy rather mm-hmm. that I can come up with. You know, we're gonna. We're going to strap on our, you know, whatever, you know, holy mm-hmm. water or, you know, our Gideon's New Testament yeah. or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We're going to go out there and hunt us some, some demons. Right. You know, th- you're never going to find, you know, that sort of attitude, you know, in, in the New Testament. What you do, you know, find is that Jesus tells you know, his followers, look, you do have authority here. Mm-hmm. You do yeah. have authority here. And, and when you run into it, it is to that authority Mm-hmm. that you appeal that, you know, and, yes. and Paul, you know, the, the weapons of our warfare, you know, are not, you know, carnal. It, it, it's a consistent pattern. It, it's mm-hmm. dependence on, on the person and work of Jesus and, and you speak truth to lies. Yeah. It, to me, that's the mm-hmm. simplest way to understand it. Yeah. And you make the distinction a lot in your writing that Jesus in the great commission didn't tell us to be demon hunters, but he told us to walk in authority in his authority. And so, uh, as opposed to going out and chasing exorcism and deliverance I, and things like yeah, that, I like to ask what, what do we think of the, the powers of darkness are afraid of? Right. They're not afraid of the volume of your voice. Mm-hmm. Okay. They just aren't. Yeah. What, what they're really, you know, I mean, you know, ultimately, you know, what they're afraid of is the great commission, mm-hmm. which is why I think Paul links the demise of the, you know, the principalities and the powers, you know, to the, to the fullness of the Gentiles, right. You know, to in, the end of days, yeah. passages, you know, which is again, the end of days, because that the fullness of the Gentiles is when God decides, you know, my people from these disinherited nations are now back home. They're in the fold and that's going to lead to an awakening of Israel, you know, mm-hmm. what, whatever all Israel means there, you know, in Romans nine through 11. And then the end comes. Mm-hmm. And that is when the judgment of Psalm 82, that these gods are going to die like men. That's mm-hmm. when they get destroyed. And, and, and they know this. Mm-hmm. They know what the mechanism is for this. And so the best thing they can do, you know, I, I get asked, well, do demons, you know, as powers of darkness, do they think they can win? Well, they're not idiots. You know, they, they, they know who God is. They're not going right. to kill God or beat God. But what they can do is they can forestall the advance of the kingdom of God and the fullness of the Gentiles mm-hmm. by, again, blinding people to the truth. Yeah and distracting Christians from doing the great commission. And as image bearers of God, I would imagine they, they hate us. Right. You know, and you know, honestly, it's not a bad strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually worked pretty well. Right. You know, I mean, I mean, Christians are, get hopelessly distracted on so many things. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, so many rabbit trails we could go down there, you know, but I, I think of our own day and age, you know, you know, politically, I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, don't be involved. Yeah. But what I am saying is you might want to ask yourself who, who your king is. Ooh, yes. Right. Who is your king? Who, where is your allegiance? You know, and, and, and if you, if you realize it's to, it's to the Lord, well, what is, what is you know, your king told you to do? Oh yeah. There's that great commission thing. Well, that keeps popping up, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's a reason why it keeps popping up mm-hmm. because it, it is linked to the restoration of the Edenic vision and the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. And, and, and the death mm-hmm. of all these other Elohim, they will be removed from existence. Yeah. You know, in that timetable. Yeah. Well, obviously we could continue, as you said, down that rabbit trail for a long time. And I think there's going to be maybe opportunities to do that in the future, hopefully. But I, I want to finish before I let you go. I want to finish up with just a few questions that sure. some folks submitted because I told them that I was talking to someone like you and people like you get really interesting questions as I, as I know that you're, <laughs> you're used to. But um, the first one is uh, from somebody actually that I personally know who in attempting to understand the, the first century worldview. And then of course, through the old Testament has approached some of the Jewish, well, Protestants would call the apocryphal writings, but the Jewish mystic writings sometimes. And, and they wanted to know how should we approach non-canonical Jewish writings such as first Enoch? And what advice would you give to ensure that we're able to discern what might be true and what is false? Mm-hmm. Well, the, 
determining what might be true and, and, and what might be false is always going to be, you know, a result of comparing this with, with scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's not a cop-out answer because right. the, the Old Testament, the Jewish community, no one accepted for apparently uh, the, the sect at Qumran, no one thought that Enoch was inspired. Mm-hmm. For, the, for the majority, the vast majority of the Jewish community, the litmus test was, does it exist in Hebrew? Is it witnessed in Hebrew? And there is no extant you know, evidence that Enoch was you know, witnessed in Hebrew. So that, that was a big strike against it. Um, but you know, regardless of that, you know, in the early church, it had its defenders, but then they were willing to let it go. They believed that the Holy Spirit would influence the body of Christ to make the correct decision. Mm-hmm as far as what was canonical, what was sacred. You know, I think that, I think it's a very good illustration of what our attitude should be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't think any of these books are canonical, but a book does not have to be canonical to be useful. Right. All right. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. And the apostles and the biblical writers read these books. All you need to do is, is, you know, closely compare again in the original languages, what they're writing and then go look at some of this other stuff. And it's very obvious that they're dipping into this material. Right. And it, it doesn't have to be, you know, inspired to be useful. You know, people usually associate this question with Enoch. Right. You know, because it was, there was a controversy in the early church about it. Nobody does it with the Baal cycle. Yeah. Okay. The psalmist, you know, quote the Baal cycle here and there. Daniel 7 follows the Baal cycle in its, in its order of events in the divine council scene. You know, it, it's not inspired. Right, Paul quoted it, Stoic philosophers. Exactly, it, it, it's a it's a thing that writers use to connect with their audience because they know their audience is familiar with this material, mm-hmm. and then they start tweaking it. Then they mm-hmm. start, you know, showing differences, or then they use it as a vehicle to 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 come up with a memorable way of saying something. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it this is what writers do. Yeah, <laughs> it's what writers sure. do. And the more of that stuff we have in our head, the more we'll catch. Yeah. Because the biblical writers were not hacks. They were very good at what they did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I, and so I do think, you know, like you said, just because something's not inspired doesn't mean it's not useful. First and second Maccabees are tremendous yeah. accounts of history um, and tell us a lot about the intertestamental period. Um, so I suppose it's just like anything, caution and discernment from the Holy Spirit. You know, you, you, you compare it with, with the, the material that is canonical, that is inspired and, and sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that, that's going to be your, your litmus test. It's going to be your arbiter. Yeah. But, you know, in doing that, you're also, you have to have to be willing to let it inform your reading because again, there's a reason the writers are, are dipping into that. Right. There, there's some, there, there, there's some analogous thing going on there. They're using it to make some point in some way for mm-hmm. some reason. And so the more of it, you know, you'll just be a, a more careful right. reader of, mm-hmm. of the biblical text. Absolutely. Uh, another submitted question came from, on Instagram, and it's one that I, I've, as a pastor, get quite a bit. And mm-hmm. um, I don't expect you to be able to answer this completely because you are not, you know, an MD, you're a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, but to what degree are mental illnesses influenced by spiritual warfare and the powers of darkness, in your opinion? Yeah. Well, I again, there, there's this is not something you can you can put it in a petri dish or under a microscope. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Oh, these genes or these molecules, that's on the spirit side. And, you know, there's no way to do that. I I would say this. I I think for the most part that, you know, science has given us a a pretty acute but not perfect uh, ability to understand, you know, how mental illnesses work, you know, what what they're derivative from, what their catalysts are, so on and so forth. Um, Sometimes there is a a hardwire explanation. Or a hardware explanation for those things, but other times it's software. Hmm. Okay, it's environmental. In other words, you know, uh, scientists will use this hardware-software uh, thing to 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 argue against things like genetic determinism. You know, again, newsflash, pro tip: real scientists don't believe in genetic determinism. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have epigenetics. You know, for, you know, for instance, but there, it's a hardware versus software issue. I think this is how we should look at that. I think for the most most part, the hardware hardware answers you know you know, run the gamut, cover it pretty sure. well, but there is this software, this non biological element, that 
since we are conscious beings, you know, we are spiritual beings just in bodies, there can be some influence and interaction, you know, out there. Mm -hmm. So I will leave the door open to that. Uh, but I, I can't pretend in any way to be able to parse yeah. when one thing is happening versus the other. Yeah. But one thing, one distinction I've heard you make, and it actually leads into the last question is you warn Christians against any form of soliciting the powers yeah. of darkness. And so yeah. I know that popularly we're talking about, you know, yeah. things as trivial or seemingly trivial, they're not trivial, but Ouija boards and what movies you're watching and things like that on the way to you know, like you said, who is your king? And, mm -hmm. and so, so I suppose the, the best way to summarize that is if someone has opened themselves up to the powers of darkness and they are experiencing mental illness, then mm -hmm. don't ignore that potential right. of soliciting. Right. Uh, solicitation is a common theme, not only in, in, in biblical Jewish Christian, you know, writings, you know, biblical or not, it, it's just a consistent theme, but you'll also see it in ancient Near Eastern yeah. you know, work. And you'll, you'll even see it today, you know, mm -hmm. in modern times in occultism and, and practicing polytheism. You know, I, mm -hmm. um, when, when you're in an academic meeting at the American Academy of Religion and your speaker <laughs> is a polytheist, yeah. I think the Jordan paper, I had read his little book, The Gods Are Many. And I went to hear yeah. him talk about his, his, I don't want to call it a faith, but his religion. And he was very, very clear, very upfront that solicitation is really important. You, mm. you, you have to go beyond just the mental ascent that the gods are out there. You have to court them. Mm -hmm. You have to open yourself to them. You have to let them know that you are a willing supplicant. Mm -hmm. You want the interaction in some way. Uh, I think we, we can do this. I'll use the word innocently. In other words, without like formal intent, right? Uh, there are mechanisms to do this. And when we play around with that sort of stuff, they will take advantage of that. Absolutely. We'll take advantage of that. Yeah. Well, and so lastly, and this is probably the best way to summarize our entire conversation, because I know a lot of people don't look at conversations like the one you and I have had as things where they want to dig into esoteric and deep ideas. They want to know, how does this apply to my life? And this last question is from at J crib on Instagram. He says, to what degree, or uh, how do you find the balance of walking in Christ's authority when it comes to spiritual darkness but also not walking in arrogance or foolishness. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I'm 57 years old and I've done plenty of really stupid things. Sure. So I, I don't really have a problem <laughs> with that. And, and, and I have a wife that will remind me consistently uh, of that. Let, let, let me, let me just be blunt. I don't yeah. know how to work my TV. Okay? <laughs> it's just too complicated. Uh huh. So I know what my limitations are pretty acutely. When it comes to, to spiritual things, my interest is, is not, oh, what can I learn about Dagon today? Yeah. Okay. It's what can I learn about the way God looks at the world and what God wants? In other words, the purpose for humanity. Why, why, why bother with any of this? Mm -hmm. And how do I, how do I understand that? And, and, and as soon as you start to, to go down that path, you invariably, you can't avoid what we would call a supernatural worldview. You just can't avoid it. You know, God, God is, is ground zero, you know, for, for a supernatural reality. And so that, that takes you into the, how the, those two worlds intersect because, you know, God is active and these other beings that he has made are also active. And so I, I really like understanding not only the conflict, but the solution and the whole program. I like mm -hmm. the story. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I like the, the meta narrative. I, I, you know, it's a continual fascination, you know, for me. Uh, I don't, why would I fixate on the losers? <laughs> you know, honestly, yeah, why, that's it right why, there. That's the bumper sticker right the there. Losers? Yeah. You know, mm. I, I want to know, you know, and I do know who wins, but, but isn't it amazing that that we're part of that? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's why good fantasy, you know, like like Lord of the Rings or something like that, mm -hmm. uh, and, and Lewis, Lewis and Tolkien were, were were very in tune with a lot of these ideas, mm -hmm. the the imaginary worldview, the supernatural worldview, right. and, and they, they they exploit that and, and and repurpose the idea and ideas in their fiction. And I think the reason they appeal is because it gives meaning. Mm -hmm. It gives it gives meaning to to who we are and and the the, the wonder of 
this greater intelligence, this greater yeah. person that God is, that he would even be interested. Yeah. So that's what I find yeah. really appealing. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not very interested, you know, in, in the abilities of the losers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I do think it's important to understand that, that they're, you know, they're, they're real. I mean, the old Testament writers, the biblical writers, this was their worldview. Yeah. And, you know, it might become an issue of biblical authority, you know, for some, but mm-hmm. You know, I, I have crossed that Rubicon. Yeah, right. Um, I'm, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Well, and I suppose a, a good way to kind of encapsulate that idea is be a follower of Christ, be a devout follower of Christ, focus on the winners, as you would say. And then when you come across the losers, you might act, you might be prepared and know whose authority you're walking in as opposed to right. uh, trying to exercise your own authority. Right. What, what can you do to, you know, we say do the Great Commission, but, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the more emotive way to put it is what can you do to rescue people? Yeah. Right. Really what it is. Yeah. So, well, if you've made it this far, then you've been uniquely blessed by this conversation. I've been blessed by being a part of it. As I've already said, make sure to follow uh, Dr. Heiser at, on Instagram and Twitter at the links in the show notes, make sure to, uh, after you're done listening to this podcast, switch over to the naked Bible podcast and hear even more in-depth explanation of his expertise. Dr. Heiser, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been terrific. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.